I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. This is a special post-democratic debate episode featuring activists Wagatwe Wanjuki and Anoa Changa. Nice. On this episode, I talked with two activists who I admire deeply, Wagatwe Wanjuki and Anoa Changa, and I wanted to get their takes on the first democratic debate. This is actually the first of two special episodes. We'll have another episode covering the second group of Democratic candidates. That second debate airs tonight. But here is my conversation with Bogatwe and Anoa. And we opened our conversation discussing who we felt had breakout moments during the debate and which candidates kind of remained the same, and also which candidates floundered. Anyhow, please enjoy. Just thinking about tonight and like having like people, you know, having a breakout moment. I really feel like Julian Castro really had an opportunity to get some good points. You know, particularly he showed his mastery of understanding like immigration uh, and, and really, you know, not backing down, um, particularly in exchange he was having with uh, O'Rourke. Because even with his use of Spanish, I don't know if I can call him Beto anymore, but... Um, <laughs> but, but, but seriously, you know, Julian Castro is the only one that has... I mean, they've all made various statements and stuff, but he has an actual plan dealing with police accountability and brutality and police violence. And, and he came out swinging on reproductive justice. I don't know that we've had a presidential mm-hmm. candidate say reproductive justice. I can't remember if Hillary Clinton did or didn't. So I don't want to take any credit from her if she did. Yeah, I mean, that was, I think that was a good, and you know, I got to give it to Cory Booker for recognizing um, Black trans women, even though yeah. he had a very long-winded way of saying it, but he still made sure Black trans women were acknowledged on the stage tonight. Yeah, um, I was a big fan of Julian Castro as well, and hearing reproductive justice. I'll say, though, I, I do feel like, the candidates may need to hire some trans folk to be on their communications team because I still feel some sort of discomfort or a little bit of a stumbling around it for a lot of folks this evening, especially uh, Tulsi Gabbard. It felt like she was like in pain every single time she said LGBT, but I got a lot more annoyed with the white dude candidates than I expected to be, I think. I, for me, like, I think with the overstimulation mm-hmm. thing, I don't know, was that also the setting? But yeah, I, I, basically what I expected in terms of, like, who moved up or down in terms of what I was thinking of, I don't think people changed much. Yeah, yeah, I don't think people ch- I think most people didn't change at all, right? Especially, like you said, the white dudes. Tim Ryan and, yeah. you know, D- Delaney, right? Yeah. Like, you know, I, I think going in, like, most people were like, who who are those guys, right? And then going out, they were like, who are those guys? Like, like, mm-hmm. But you're right about Castro. Like, so the thing about Julian Castro, I think you're right. I have never heard... Now, so we can talk about reproductive rights and we can talk about, you know, abortion, abortion rights or right to an abortion. But that term reproductive justice is very specific and it's very broad. Mm -hmm. And I haven't heard anyone at that level of candidacy use that phrase before. So that really stood out to me. Yeah, same. I think what will be interesting for me is like as the field narrows down, whether they can keep talking about it outside of like 30 second sound bites, mm-hmm. because I worry we're getting into this place where um, it, it's something that I felt with Pete Buttigieg is that, you know, he is very good with like the woke alphabet soup. You know, he has the phrases, he'll say them. But for me, like I never, I was like, I feel like you don't even know what you're saying, bro. Like you're just like, you know, went to Tumblr and copy and paste it. And so <laughs> 
I, you know, for me, I'm like, okay, I'm interested. And now I'm like, all right, let me see how deep your knowledge is, right? Like, did you just have some folks throw you some cards and like, but I I am, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic, excited, I'll say. I agree about, you know, not realizing I'd be as annoyed. Like there was like, there was like a meme and it was like a variations of Kendall. And it's like all the different white men who have like qualified or are running for president (laughs) and stuff. And they are so nondistinct. And like John Delaney, I mean, you know, now to see the faces go with the names and stuff, I'm just like, who is this Tim Ryan? What are you talking about? And Tim Ryan's whole the forgotten community. Like, oh. I lived in Appalachia <laughs> for seven years. So I understand talking about the struggles of poor white people, right? Like, I understand the struggle of talking about poor people, period, across the board. I get it. However, this feeds into this really bad narrative of victimization that particular constituencies tend to have that allows for this false dichotomy that is either white working class voters or the rest of us right and like we need to break away from that and we have a cycle right now where we have you know a a, a good number i would say we have what four or five candidates really trying to break away from that and we have a bunch of other people doing very variations of the same old, same old, no matter how radical some of them may have policies on the books, right? They're still running the same entrenched institutionalized whiteness and appealing to, you know, these delusions that somehow, you know, if you just work hard, then everyone can get ahead. Um, the other downer for me uh, was, was also Tulsi and her, you know, closing about the greatness of America and what this land was founded on. Honey, you're from Hawaii, right? (laughs) Anyone should understand how screwed up America is. It is someone hailing from, you know, the Aloha state. But obviously that's that's not a part of her uh, uh, consciousness. I mean, we also saw that with her comments earlier in the week about as a woman of color, I would never do this litany of things. (sighs) And, And so there's so much with her that's just off. And even her sister tweeting for her while she was on stage, complaining that Senator Warren was getting too much time. When in fact, I really felt like Beto work kept getting way too much time and Delaney spoke way more. I, I wonder if this is something too, we had three women on stage tonight and compared to the men, they were not as aggressive or assertive in the conversation. And mm. I wonder all, yeah. we have a woman who's been in the military, so she used to procedure and protocol. We have two older women who unfortunately through the way they were probably socialized are used to not being as forceful, but that doesn't mean that they can't still fight. It's a double-edged sword. And I think we were talking about this in the very beginning. It doesn't mean that they can't be as forceful and and aggressive and fight as hard for us. But when we are in these spaces, unfortunately, the way men tend to dominate conversations, some of that seemed apparent tonight with, you know, de Blasio yelling over everybody. Like I was really disappointed in him. Not that I had really great hopes for de Blasio, but at the same time, invoking his black son, I'm the only one to raise a black son. Okay, Cory Booker's the only one to grow up a black man. What is your... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, de Blasio was really annoying to me. Like, I was surprised by how annoying he was. He was and like, because I was starting to feel a little bad for him because like, everyone loves dragging him online, you know, and I'm like, I was starting to get a feel a little bad, but then the way that he acted, I'm like, come on, bro, you're making this hard to like keep up the compassion thing. Like, stop. Yeah. Yeah. You know, two things that you mentioned I wanted to ask you about. So, first of all, think, you know, you mentioned Gabbard, Tulsi Gabbard. I still cannot figure out 
you know, a lot of people I want to know why they're running, but I really want to know why she's running. And and the whole de Blasio mentioning his son thing, like that just made me cringe. And I'm not really sure why. Like, it's true. Yeah, he does have a black son. But it just seems like, oh, I don't know. I can't really put the, the words around it. Just what is it, it? What is it? Well, it's just like, it's like somehow, I mean, we go through this with people, right? Who have white, white, or who are white, who have spouses and children who are you know, non-white presenting to the world, right? And so, you know, that that somehow by an extension of having that familiar relationship, they can't have a certain level of prejudice or racism, or they somehow have a better understanding. And it is possible that because of your proximity to particular people, you may have developed a different understanding of particular issues, but that does not mean that you're necessarily better across the board or that you're somehow absolved. Between that, him trying to throw shade at Mayor Pete over what happened in South Bend, and then his own invoking that I run the largest police force in the country, really, really yeah. was disheartening. Because he's trying to play both sides. He, he's trying to both sides it without saying he's both sides in it, you know? And, you know, I'm a Black mother of a Black son. You're a Black mother of a Black son. Like, it's a very different experience for us to talk about our sons because we're just talking about the experience of raising our children. He's literally trying to use his son in that instance. And I don't know whether he intentionally thinks of that. He probably doesn't. He's super woke. He probably doesn't think he's doing anything wrong, but that was a very gross moment for me. And I kind of cringed a lot. Um, that, and then also <laughs> I wish I could have gotten a close up of his face when Julian Castro named Eric Garner um, considering the fact that the city of New York is still paying Eric Garner's killer, uh, not just his regular salary, but mm. like a hefty amount of overtime to the point the man's making six figures. Wow. So it, it was really disheartening. I mean, it also like just thinking about the fact that New York is a place that I was born in and would have loved to be able to move back to. So my kids could have enjoyed the, 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 the newfound prosperity of, the neighborhoods I grew up in and, 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 and have the experiences we, my parents tried to give us, even though we didn't have much money, but, you know, listen to Blasi talk about, you know, making New York better for working people. Working people can't afford to live in New York. Like mm. I don't, you, you have proposals right now. People are trying to prosecute folks, you know, who are jumping a turnstile in the subway because they literally can't afford the cost of transportation. And that's a state level issue too, not necessarily a city issue, but it's just it's just so wild with so much wrong in New York to watch de Blasio try to remake as this progressive paradise, hmm. giving him the, the what it takes to run for president. I I just don't I I think he needs to go back home like 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 Pete had to do that. Yeah. And you know, so you, yeah, you nailed it for me. It, like I felt like and see that's the thing that I couldn't really articulate because I have a black son and you have a black son like we talked about. And if I were on that stage and I mentioned my black son, I don't know, like, I don't, I wouldn't feel like we would be using it, but for something about that moment, it felt like he was just kind of using that versus it being, I don't know, sincere, but you know, anyway, that, that, I mean, it makes sense. Like it kind of, I feel like it relates to what I was saying earlier, right? Like when you're saying something in a 30 second soundbite versus like, when you're able to pull it out and like really talk about it and have the nuance. Cause like, if you just kind of just drop it in there, it sounds, it sounds not gimmicky, you know, but you know what I mean? Like it does feel shallow and it feels like what 
white people do and they're like well I have a black friend you know kind of thing and it's like ah like this is not helpful or productive and it feels like you're just using us as props and that's not Cool. Yeah. So I want to talk about how they open. So they talked about the economy. They're open talking about the economy. And I think that if I remember correctly, the first question went to Elizabeth Warren, who I think everybody expected to be the star of tonight's debate, right? Like Warren, you know, she's been rising rapidly in the polls. And one of the things that she did, you know, off the bat answering that first question about the economy is that she brought up black voters, right? She brought that up right away, which I think is something that's distinguished her, you know, from this, you know, really large field of candidates that she keeps making that reference, right? Mm-hmm. But she she did this thing that she does and she's been doing it throughout her whole career. You know, it's kind of her brand, anti-corruption, you know. She's against, you know, big corporations. You know, sometimes I want her to go deeper. What do you guys think about that? Um, you know, I think the medium again, it just like I don't know if it's me, like the wonky part of me, the part of me that loves like doing the deep dives. Like I think I, from what I thought, I thought she did pretty well considering the constraints uh, in terms of time. And I think it's it's so hard to talk about structural things that are like and like bring in nuance when you have a few seconds to go. So, you know, I will say in comparison to basically all the white dudes, especially, but like to most of the candidates on stage, I feel like she did for me, she felt the most natural about it and as opposed to just like kind of like running off a list when a certain topic was brought up yeah i think that's a really good point i i I, you know it it, it is going to be challenging to navigate these this very interesting dynamic and she's and i i think it was just i think it was slightly underwhelming because she has this reputation of being this really great debate champion and we've seen her in situations but i'm also just thinking about strategically how do you prepare to be on that stage, to have those constraints with 10 people. Like, that's just like mm-hmm. weird. But I do think, you know, going forward with the next go round next month, it is going to, she does definitely need to get comfortable with inserting herself more because for the most part with that whole pop foreign policy section, she just sat there quiet. Granted, that is an area yeah. also where she has been criticized some, but at the same time, like that exchange between, uh, which one is it? I don't remember, was it Ryan maybe in Tulsi about uh, Al Qaeda versus the Taliban? Like, oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> it was really embarrassing for Ryan. Oh, God. He, he's going to drop out after this, or he should. He's I don't know. Drop out in the morning. I mean, <laughs> yeah. he needs to save us and do us, do us all a good favor. I mean, I will say, thinking about the first real debate in 2015 16 cycle, pretty much the other three besides uh, Bernie, Hillary, and Martin O'Malley. <laughs> but like, they were they were like the only three after like the first debate. There were six of them, and then it went to the three of them because the other few people were just so awful, they dropped out, right? Like basically mm-hmm. by the next day or a couple of days afterwards. I really do hope we start to see some attrition this week. But there are some folks, I know I'm jumping ahead to like people from tomorrow night, but there are some folks who have already said, Oh, I'm in this for the long haul. No matter how much you, I really wish they would just go sit down. But tonight, I was pleasantly appreciative and, and surprised that, you know, s- several of the candidates did get in, you know, comments about like something involving like racial justice, you know, Black and Latinx folks in particular. But we have such like an existential threat right now in terms of the way in which white supremacy is very blatantly 
I mean, it's always present because it's in the fabric of the United States of America, but we have a very real issue right now. And even the conversation around like abortion, we have a very real threat happening right now. Like some of the phraseology of the questions, like I get they want to get a more robust picture of how the candidates will respond to these these things, but we also have some real pressing like existential issues happening. And so I just, I just, I think, I think really, I think one of the other biggest loser was like overall, like MSNBC, NBC, I'm not going to blame Telemundo because I'm pretty sure they probably didn't let, you know, when white folks are in charge, they tend not to let any of the rest of us do anything. So I'm not going to blame Telemundo, but, but I mean, just, I just think even like the gun question, right? The phrasing about like, you know, are you going to take away the guns? I I have a problem with this both siding of a lot of these issues. People people tend to do this, and we see it unfortunately from so-called liberal, liberal media. There's this unnecessary um, feeling of having to be fair to the other side, when in fact we have so many instances of the quote unquote other side of conservatives, the right, alt right, whatever, position these issues with such a false underpinning that we're responding to something that's not even really the issue and obfuscating the real issue and not getting things done. And it's disheartening if our debates are set up that way where those types of questions are being posed to our candidates. Yeah, I mean, I was just gonna say that's a really good point just to capitalize on that. Like it just, it reminds me how good conservatives have been and Republicans have been and like being so pervasive, how, getting their narratives to be so pervasive in, in the media discourse. Um, it's astonishing and we keep falling and they, and they keep falling for it. And it's, it's frustrating to say the least. Yeah. What do you guys think about Peter O'Rourke just generally and the whole, you know, Spanish thing? He, it, he kind of gave me flashbacks to my time in like prep school and going to Tufts University. And it's like it's that white dude who's like a bit too friendly and like really wants to prove to you that he's not that white. Mm. And then so he's going to like he's like, oh, I listened to this or like I had a black girlfriend once. And you're like, cool, bro. Like, that's how it came across <laughs> for me Yeah, <laughs> when he was dropping this. Face. Like, it, it felt like he was trying a little too hard. It just felt. I don't know, it was just such an awkward night. I don't know, it was also just like my over the cumulative feelings of like secondhand embarrassment was influencing that, but it was widely panned on Twitter. So I feel like I was not alone. No, I totally don't think you were alone because I think it I mean, I had this conversation with a couple of folks previously when um I think Beto was making a big deal about his Spanish or whatever. And I really felt that that was kind of a dig at Julian. And so I was having a conversation with a couple of friends who were either first generation or their their parents were first generation mm -hmm. and thinking about the pressure to assimilate that's placed on immigrants in particular, right? Mm -hmm. And and how in a lot of families speaking Spanish for some instances, actually it's, it's one of my friends, you know, one of the, the guys I know here I'm in Georgia, he was talking about how, but for the fact that his school had a serious Spanish immersion program, he would have completely forgotten his language because when his parents moved here, it was very important for them to you know, assimilate and fit into America. So they stopped speaking Spanish at home and he was really young. And because of that, if it wasn't for school, he would not be fluent right now. And he's fluent. You would, you would, he's like, I am a native speaker, but it's a weird situation because, but for the fact that we had this program while I was going through school, I would have lost that ability because my parents really pushed us to learn English. 
And I think that there is a double, there's a double standard here, right? Between the two of them in particular. And then Cory Booker tries to speak Spanish, which was like, oh my God. And I get it. They're in Miami. Uh, I got it. They were in Miami. Uh, and Telemundo's also part of, you know, so I get it a little bit. And then Marianne Williamson had a joke and was like, oh, <laughs> I guess I need to learn Spanish by tomorrow at nine. It's like, really? <laughs> but... <laughs> It is funny, oh, but at funny. the same time, like it was, I mean, so on the one hand, you know, it's like, I'm like, am I being too cynical? Like, isn't it great that people are like, this is, this is wow. Has this ever happened? I mean, cause I know Tim Kaine was supposed to be like fluent in Spanish. I don't remember him necessarily doing debates in Spanish or anything last cycle. However, conversely, mm. the thing with Beto and him lacking in so many areas, it does come off. It comes off similar to the Blasio and the Black Sun thing, right? Like Beto, having the name Beto, yeah. living, coming from a border community. And then, yeah, look, I can also speak Spanish. It comes off a certain way. So I don't know, not Latino, so not Latinx, so can't really speak from that cultural perspective, how people feel about it. But I know I'm also biased. I will admit this, y'all. I am also biased because I've had to interact with his advanced staff um, through work I did here. So I'm already not impressed with him on the whole. <laughs> from my own like interactions Uh and there's just like so much white mediocrity in that space. I just don't understand why he's still here. He's already had to relaunch his campaign. (laughs) What? Like twice already. Um, and it feels like, well, you know, cause he came out with that whole, I was born to do this. And then everybody was like, um, dude, what? (laughs) (laughs) And then he came back to the, he was all humble on the view. Like, I didn't realize how arrogant I sound and blah, blah, blah. And so here's what I think about the Spanish thing. I've had time to think about it. The thing about it is like, I get the sentiment, like I get what he's trying to do. Right. But, you know, honestly, you know, it, it, it came across as performative Because I think if you really want to connect with that community and help that community, the Latinx community, then you would you would deal with economic inequality. Right. You deal with all the issues that that are really important to them. And, you know, you would flesh out some of those policies. Right. Versus just like, you know, speaking a few sentences of Spanish on on stage. Right. It just seemed really performative versus substantive, you know. Yeah, definitely. And it made me think about like. This habit we have and for years where it feels like also people are just preparing Spanish answers for immigration in particular. And it just made me think about how we really need to diversify how we talk about immigration and that like not, you know, like it's not just Latinx communities who are affected and who care about it. And knowing that there are migrants, right, like even from Africa coming to the border and whether it's substantive or not, like if you're just kind of saying it like, oh, immigration, cool, I'll speak Spanish. Like it, it is like I want more signs of like in-depth uh, thoughts, I guess, like because, you know, people are putting the standards high, talking about big structural change, you know, and and talking about justice. And if we're going to do that, like obviously we can't keep pretending that like one specific demographic is affected by an issue, especially if we think about like the role of anti-blackness mm-hmm. in immigration. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good point too, but like, I mean, I appreciate the conversation. The reason why the conversation was focused on immigration the way, way it was in light of what we've been seeing over the past. I mean, it's been, we've been seeing it for a while, but really like how heavily mm-hmm. concentrated it was for the past week. I really was annoyed once again with Bill de Blasio, when he was like, well, there was a parent and a child. It's like, dude, 
you got to be the dumbest kid in class. Everyone else has already shouted out the answer and you're not picking it up. Oscar and Valencia are their names, right? And Booker and Beto mm. picked up on it. Julian did it. Like Julian, I believe, led with it. He's, he's just trying and it's like, Dude, you're way out of your league. Mm. Why are you here? You know, speaking of Booker, I have to say, and I know Booker, a lot of people kind of, you know, make fun of his kind of, you know, like love everybody, <laughs> kind of happy-go-lucky attitude. But I have to say, and I know somebody, some people that we know are going to like, you know, tease me about this, but I was really impressed with his performance tonight. You know, I, I was, I was kind of really impressed, especially he gave this really nuanced answer mm. about breaking up tech companies. And he, I mean, he'd really thought about it. And I was kind of impressed with that answer, right? I mean, what do you yeah. guys think about Booker's Booker's performance tonight, just overall? I actually, yeah, you know, I am definitely one of those people who will mock the whole, oh, let's just love each other, blah, blah, blah. Because it felt, at least online, the way that it felt was like very like Barack Obama 2.0 kind of thing. And I'm just like, bro, like with the <laughs> rise of white supremacy, like, I don't know if this is the time, but it actually kind of worked, I think, um, tonight. And I don't know if it was just because I was so desperate for, like, displays of non-toxic masculinity uh, on stage after all these people, like, shouting and interrupting each other. But, yeah, for me as a cynic, I was impressed I didn't completely hate it. That's, like, a really good endorsement coming from me about something mm -hmm. that's, like, very positive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think Booker had some good moments. I was actually surprised. Um, in some instances, uh, I think he handled some of the exchanges. I like, <laughs> I grabbed a screen. I got a screen grab in the very beginning because the look on his face, because the lineup was so interesting in some of the camera angles when Beto just broke out into Spanish and he mm -hmm. wasn't answering that first question, <laughs> right? On economics, <laughs> and he wasn't answering the question. And Booker just kind of looks and Liz is kind of like side-eyeing too. So I, I got a good screen grab of it. But like, I think... I think that whole issue with Biden, what last week and him like making the conscious decision, because it clearly was a conscious decision on his behalf and his campaign's behalf for him to publicly not only say something because a couple of them said something right, but he took a very stern approach mm -hmm. in an instance where a lot of his elder colleagues were defending something. And I don't know if they maybe lit a little bit of a fire under him but I'm interested. I'm not saying I'm sold on Corey or anything, but I am interested to see how he, <laughs> how he fares, you know, going forward and to see what else he's talking about. He does. He has seemed to kind of drop the just love the hate away. Conversation. I mean, that's that seems like that's just him and who he is. He's not doing it as much, though, right now. Mm -hmm. And he at least finally stopped talking about T-Bone, it seems like. And is getting to just real connectivity with people <laughs> um, because I think. It's like some of that stuff I also think has like kept people from actually really listening to him because I know like all I hear is, you know, PhD in the streets. And I'm like, I don't want to hear nothing else you're talking about, dude. You're this is not a teen dance movie and it is not the mid 2000s. What are you talking <laughs> about? But um, but yeah, he had some interesting responses, I think, tonight. Um, and so I feel like he held his own definitely. So, I, I mean, if I was to rank folks like my top five. I don't even know if I actually have five, <laughs> but I would say, you know, I would, I would put Castro above Warren because I think he just, he was more consistent. I think he had the most to gain um, out of like more of the top contenders mm -hmm. tonight. I think he definitely took clear advantage. He really had a good moment on the decriminalization 
of migration commentary and especially pointing out with that exchange with Beto that it's not just about asylum seekers, even though that is really important. It's about undocumented people overall in terms of their safety and ability to exist peacefully. And I I really appreciate the yeah. way he has made this an issue and the way that he pushed that. And then also when he highlighted his policing plan. Um, I mean, I agree there. It's not perfect, but uh, I think then Warren, you know what I'm saying? And it's not even like there's a huge gap between the two of them. I, I, you know, she came in, she's already been rising. I really expected her to do well. She didn't disappoint me. Are there some things I thought she could have done better? Sure. Everyone always has notes after the end of a game or something. Right. But I, but I think Warren is a strong contender and I look forward to what her and her campaign continue to do and how they're building. Um, and then I would say, you know, Booker would have to be my number three and then maybe Inslee. Inslee is kind of annoying, (laughs) But yeah, yeah, yeah. but he's Mr. Climate Change. He's Mr. Mm-hmm. Clean Energy. And I appreciated the way in which he was able to insert those talking points he had about different things involving energy into the conversation tonight. Um, and then five would probably be a tie between like Bobature and Beto. I don't know, because everyone else just drives me nuts on the stage. I can't think of who else. That's the problem. There are too many people on the stage. I can't think of who else was there. Too many. Delaney. I'm sure you loved him, right? Oh, my God. My fave. Oh, my God. My fave. I know. I had to tweet out Harpo. Who this? Because I, I didn't know who it was because I missed when they were saying names. And I'm looking. I'm like, yes. they need name tags. like Or like with baby turtles, you put the... um. What you put, a, 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 you, you, you drop a, a little bit of nail polish on her back so you can tell them apart I don't know what we yeah, do. Yeah, I, I didn't something. know it was Tim Ryan until like maybe 90 minutes into the debate. <laughs> so I kept turning away <laughs> when they like showed his name. I'm like, damn it. Like, who is this person? Right. Right. And it goes so fast. So if you miss when they flash it up there, then you're completely lost. You're like, who are Why you? Why here? <laughs> Really? Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, you know what? That's my exact same order for tonight. Castro, Warren, and then um, who was the third person? I forgot. I said Booker. Booker and Inslee. Yeah, that's my exact same order. Mm -hmm. And the rest of them, there's no point in even ranking. Like, I just didn't even rank, you know? But those are the four for me. And the funny thing is, is I guess I was alluding to this before. Like, I think that Warren has risen the farthest, the fastest over the past, like, month or so, right? And I guess I expected, and this may be a function of, like, the gender, you know, dynamics on the stage, I expected her to to, to break out more tonight, right? But I think that she was just kind of maybe overpowered by all the men interrupting. Maybe, mm-hmm. possibly, you know? I don't know. Like, I was also thinking about, because someone made a comment earlier in a conversation I was having about, well, it was supposed to be her in 2016, and she didn't run and like I remember like being disappointed that she didn't run in 2016, but I feel like in the past three years, I've learned so much more about mm-hmm. the pressures, particularly on women, when it comes to these types of things. Like it's also because it was 2016 and there was so much emotionalism mm-hmm. around what was happening, right? But like I'm thinking about it now and just learning all the things I've learned in the past three years and really listening to her now about how she made the decision. That one is a big deal, right? So I'm like, one thing I I think what you're saying about, you know, being overwhelmed and being in that space in that moment, there are those dynamics that still exist no matter Mm -hmm. how smart and amazing and wonderful people are. 
I mean, people say it about Stacey Abrams too, right? And her decision to not run for Senate here in Georgia. Well, she should have did it for us. And there's this, there's this thing that's put upon women. I mean, and as black women, we know this very well, but there's this thing, this expectation that we're supposed to do for mm-hmm. everyone else above self. And it's really detrimental and problematic. So I wonder, I wonder how much of that is being played out. And I wonder how much, how much there's, I wonder how her advising is going. Because the one thing I wish I knew, because I didn't really care mm. for Hillary, right? Before, but but I'm, I'm like, I'm just being honest, but I learned when I, when her book came out after the election, when I was reading it, I was like, there are things in here. I was like, I wish this would have been a part of her story of self mm. when she was talking on the trail. Because some of the struggles that Hillary went through, like reading in the book and talking about how she was sexually harassed when she was working, when she was, even when she was married to Bill and they were in political circles and people knew, you know, that that was Bill's wife, the the uncomfortable situation she was in, their their struggles with fertility. There were so many things that humanized her in that book. Like, I really wish some of that had come out like in the campaign. I feel like the, the, maybe the male dominated advisors on the campaign tried to try to make her too hard in some ways, because that's what we've been taught that women have to be if they want to compete against men. And it feels like Warren is trying to figure out how to be her authentic self, but also show that she's as tough as the men. And I don't know if that makes any sense because I'm trying to work through it. But like women, we don't get the same grace. And particularly, I'll go back again, particularly as Black women, we don't get the same grace as our male counterparts, period. We don't get the same leverage to mess up. We don't get the same leverage to to like not be perfect in a given moment. It's either we're exceptional always or we're not worth it. And I wonder if there's some of that happening with her as a woman, despite all her accomplishments that maybe they're trying to to work through within the campaign, but she's still doing well for me overall. Yeah, she's doing, you know what, you bring up a really good point, but you know, here's the thing about, about Hillary. So when Hillary ran, there was no precedent for a woman mm-hmm at that level to run for president. So she had to figure all of this stuff out for the first time. So all the women who are running now are benefiting from what we learned from Hillary Clinton's Hillary Clinton's run. Because like, if you're the first woman to get a major party nomination, like, you know, you don't really know how vulnerable you're allowed to be. Right. Mm -hmm. Could she be that vulnerable? You know, and if you think about it, in 2008, there was that moment where she cried, you know, at a press conference, and like she was, you know, eviscerated for that for, 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 you know, months or weeks after that, right? So she's probably thinking in 2016, like, you know, what am I supposed to do? Can I be that vulnerable? And I think that you're right, that it would have been to her advantage how she talked about that stuff, you know, because I think, you know, Michelle Obama in her book, she also talked about, you know, struggles with fertility and miscarriages and stuff like that. And, and you know, now we know that. But in 2016, did we know that? You know, right, right. No, I agree. I, but I also wonder if there were more women like, like leading. I don't know. But so, so and again, it's really easy to speculate because hindsight is twenty twenty, right? But I'm just thinking about what we're watching now and the dynamics. Yeah. we have so many women in the race this time. Yeah, this is like amazing. Even mm-hmm. though I don't like some of them, we have so many women. In it's the nice race. to have women to not like, right? We have so many. I can like afford it to is. not like all of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what also makes me think, though, 
with Hillary Clinton, I think also the energy was just different because like, look at her, her, her opponent. It was Bernie Sanders, who is still like, I feel like it's still very much the energy of like the politics I grew up to expect, right? Like very much like rah, rah, like masculinity. And then her opponent is Donald Trump, also the epitome of like toxic masculinity. And so I wonder if that also made people more cautious, right? And like, and also probably not having enough women um, at the top. But I wonder how the energy has shifted. I feel like there's more camaraderie. It's less cutthroat. Like it just feels like a better energy this time. Um, it might also just be where I am in life where I'm not like working at a political organization when this stuff is happening. But yeah, it just feels like so much has shifted also Um thanks to having so many women and also probably having for having a rapist in the fucking white house (laughs) that's true (laughs) that's not funny but just you know it needs to be said more plainly (laughs) like that you know (laughs) i'm gonna have to make this episode explicit (laughs) thank you So anyway, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess I'm just having some mixed feelings. Yeah, I mean, I know what I feel about the performance of certain people, but I think that Castro, for instance, just an example, and he's not the only one, he's put out a lot of detailed policy proposals, right? But he has mm-hmm. not been given the, the the spotlight or he hasn't been recognized for that. And it really bothers me mm-hmm. that he isn't being called a wonk. Yeah, they'll call, they call yeah, they'll call uh pete Buttigieg smart which i'm like i don't even like honestly like what really makes him smart like i don't know maybe it's just me having been like a black kid who went to like prep school and like i guess you're smart in terms of like you can think well in these things but like it just feels like okay you went to college you did these things and like yes you're a politician i don't know it just feels like it's weird that it feels like clearly like all these people are smart and to like use these reasoning to like just sort of like highlight white mediocrity as like a unique intelligence is yeah it really pisses me off honestly um and i was honestly counting on the debates for julian to get more time and to shine more because i'm Mm. like i really feel like he hasn't been getting a fair chance in in media coverage no i absolutely agree and i i I, just the elevation of mayor pete and beto you know, quite mm-hmm. frankly, I mean, there was something there was something where Beto was like, he's the only one from a border state or something like that. And it's like, dude, you're literally not even the only one from Texas. <laughs> oh, my God. And you're not even Latino. Um, in case you didn't realize this, like your your kids ain't even Latino. Like, it's not even like you could be like Jeb Bush. And at least I'm raising Latino kids like. no. <laughs> and, and that's why I was actually really intrigued by that exchange over immigration tonight um, because he really had a chance, I think, to assert himself. But there were moments like where the debate, where the moderators were very stuck to the rules. It was chaotic at times, right? And I guess that's how, Mm -hmm. I didn't watch the Republican debate, so I assume that's how they got at times as well. Um, Probably way worse though. Um, But I, I think that Julian did a good job of making sure he got some really good zingers in and, and, and I agree with what you were saying at the beginning with Gatsway, like, like, you know, having them have particular people be more intricate and possibly folks are already involved in their policy, but make sure their policy and comms folks are working together to make sure they're just more comfortable with the language they're using. It's definitely great that he is being willing, he is willing to get out there and say certain things and really push 
particular conversations and would like to see that tightened up some. But I am glad that he was able to get on the debate stage tonight and did get to, you know, hold his own really strongly, you know, on that stage. Mm -hmm. And for my, I'm looking at through my feeds, everyone's like, wow, Castro did really well. I'm liking Castro. Castro was good. <laughs> I was like, Castro did well. Apparently it just, just, just got a message. Booker did a post-debate commentary and said that he would not accept the VP nomination from a man and his team, <laughs> no all white tickets. What, what, oh. wait, what did Booker say? <laughs> He will not accept the VP nomination from a man. So basically he will okay. only be VP to a woman and he is not interested in seeing an all white ticket. Um, didn't Bernie Sanders turn down committing to the Girl. VP thing? <laughs> <laughs> Girl. Let's see what happens tomorrow night. But girl. Oh, God, I'm not ready for tomorrow. Oh, that, that's going to be good tomorrow. That pairing tomorrow is that's the fire. That's oh, what I'm waiting God. for. Biden and Harris, oh, Judge and Sanders on the same stage. I, I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to need wine or coffee or something stronger. <laughs> right i'm like i haven't bought whiskey like <laughs> all year i might have to break that streak <laughs> oh god uh and with the warren thing you know when she kind of stepped back i also wonder about the double standard in terms of like having a woman shine too much because like People did start complaining a little bit on Twitter, right? Like even beyond Tulsi Gabbard's sister, but just sort of like, whoa, she's getting more time than everyone else and blah, blah, blah. And I wonder if she sensed that or, you know, she didn't want to be coming out of debate like, oh, she's already like basically the front runner. And then she took up all this time. And how dare she? I could be over reading into it, but that's sort of like I could understand because it did feel kind of like lopsided in the beginning that she was like talking a lot. And then it, but then for them to compensate, it felt like it was like a long absence. That's what I felt too. Like I felt like in the beginning, you know, she was given the first question. Right. And I think mm -hmm. they kind of centered her towards the end, but in the middle, I felt that there was like a really long gap. And I, you know, I, you know, I also yeah, think it's really funny that you guys mentioned, and we have to talk about this, that the, that the audio stopped working as soon as Chuck Todd started. <laughs> <laughs> The mics just stopped working. It was like a poltergeist. Karma. <laughs> We're all Chuck Todd's mic. <laughs> it's like, stop, please. So there's just one question that I wanted an answer to that nobody answered. It was like, what were, what are you going to do if we don't win the Senate? What are you going to do about Mitch McConnell? Mm -hmm. And like, who had the best answer to that? I think it was Castro. No, it was Inslee. That's right. Inslee said that he said um, he said that he would take away the filibuster. Mm -hmm. And that was the only answer that was given. Everybody else was like, you know, oh, well, we must win the Senate or, you know, some other answer. They talked about climate change. I think O'Rourke mentioned climate change. <laughs> Which Warren oh has God. Warren has been talking about getting rid of the filibuster. And that's one thing that she and Bernie Sanders disagree on. Um, and yet there there were some things that I felt like it's like, come on, sis, you have some really good. But I mean, again, it's like that was chaotic. You know, in July, we'll see how things go. But no, I agree. Yeah. But the other thing I, I think I kind of like. I kind of tune out about the Senate only because I'm like, unless we're getting rid of Mitch McConnell and there's a serious plan to, re re you know, replace some folks, we got a problem, Dems. 
because there's a whole bunch of seats up and you know we have a pipeline we have a senate pipeline problem um and y'all got to get it together and i do think the presidential candidates they need to be concerned about their own campaigns for sure but you're trying to be the nominee you're trying to be the, the titular head of the party the one driving driving the strategy for winning in 2020 so we at some level they got to kind of have a think about how is that going to impact what's happening down ballot as well um I mean, I know that's a tall order, but we we need a real clear plan. One thing I wanted to ask you guys about. So um, people were talking about how smart it was of Trump's campaign to buy newspaper ads. And also apparently he bought like YouTube ad space. So we were all, you know, some of us were watching the debate online. So Trump bought all this ad space, you know, um, they were all supposed to be running commercial about, you know, anti-Medicare for all. I don't know that that's smart, I think that he's just really good at exploiting weaknesses. So what do you think about, mm -hmm. you know, we've had one debate so far with half the field. We have the different wings of the Democratic Party, the DNC, the DCCC, everyone doing whatever, and we have the other half tomorrow. What do you guys really think about the way in which Trump has been crafty? Like, are Democrats really prepared to do this with an incumbent Trump? Ooh, that's a good question. Mm -hmm. Are they really prepared? You mean prepared in that, like, for instance, he kind of marketed at the same time as a democratic debate. And if they're, you know, prepared to counter those kind mm -hmm. of, probably not. <laughs> 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 I'm going to say that because, I mean, so think about it. Like, you know, one of the things that I mentioned on Twitter tonight was that, you know, they didn't bring up in the debate, really. They didn't really go deeply into Russia's interference in the election. They didn't go into election security issues, right? And, you know, that, you know that's a big problem. That's something that I think the Republicans and, and Trump, they're counting on. They're counting on the fact that, that, you know, our democracy is being weakened through our voting rights and through election security. That's a roundabout way to answer your question, but it seems like that's something that's been put in front of Dems over and over and over again. And they have not been able to adequately address it, or they just haven't addressed it. Also, when we think about, you know, the whole conversation we've been having nationally the past year and a half, really about voter suppression, gerrymandering, redistricting. Um, and then we're also coming up with the census in 2022, 2020 as well, right? But um, we're going to go into the second election post-Shelby, you know, without the full protections of the Voting Rights Act. Um, so this is going to be, and I don't, I don't really feel like Democrats took that all seriously enough um in 2016 and we saw you know the issues that we saw but we saw we've seen a lot of issues we've seen maps struck down in several states we've seen massive voter suppression and other issues in states like here in georgia and and some of the candidates are trying to respond talking about you know voting rights platforms and election security a little bit but it just seems like it's still it's not even that it's wonky. I think it's clunky and people are are reading, people are moving fast to try and get stuff out, but it's not necessarily as complete as we need it to be. And I, I just feel like Democrats can't just leave it up to state or local level parties. Like the national democratic infrastructure cannot leave it up to local folks to make sure that election protection, like election protection needs to be as important right now, well before the primary even starts, as it will be on, on election day in the general November, right? Like we need to, we, we know the different shenanigans are already gonna start happening. So people need to be informed about absentee ballots and provisional ballots and all these, there's just so many levels to it. 
so much work that I think needs to be done that has not been done since the last election on top. And, and then in addition to, we have the other issues that you that you were raising as well, um, Jennifer. So I, 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 it is a concern. And I do think that we need to be hyper, it's hard because we have to be hyper vigilant about so much. But I really do think making sure, yeah. I mean, he's already joking about how he doesn't want to give up the office if he doesn't win. He, he has no intention on yeah. leaving. That's a problem because he they don't have a plan for that nope part of it is that i feel that i i think some of them can handle trump like when when the field narrows down what i really don't have a lot of confidence in is like the media covering it well or properly like we're still not having black women moderating debates and just you know was it cbs announcing their political team and there wasn't a single black person on there and like one white white passing latino person i think like it was just like there's still the same old stuff and then like still right the hill still keeps on pushing out its headlines that are like pushing you know lies and misconceptions as like neutral facts it just feels like there's still so much of the same old of like the well-paid or decently paid or maybe not even all the time, but like people in media, but I think especially the well-paid ones, right. Where they have more in common with the people who are on the side of white supremacy and they're, they're too soft on them. And I think they fall for Trump's tricks. Yeah. You know, just to flesh out my answer a little bit more, I guess where I was going was that Trump to me, and this is just a feeling, right. He just seems really confident. He does not seem as afraid as you would think that someone in his position would be afraid. So that just makes me think that he has something up, up his sleeve or there's something that he's counting on in relation to election security. Or And, and, I, and I know that Democrats have not really addressed those issues. Like, you, like I said before, you know, election security, especially around Russian interference, they haven't addressed that. And so I mean, that's really where we need to start. Everything that we've been talking about is moot, right? It's moot if they don't have a plan to deal with this, right? You know, he's, he's tweeting about, you know, being president till 2050 or something, something absurd, right? He wouldn't even be alive. He'd be like 130 <laughs> if he were president that long, right? And, you know, they have not really talked about it. And we talked about, you know, people having really detailed policy plans. And that's something that I, that Warren has, and she's getting a lot of attention for that. But I'm really impressed with the details that she has on her website. But, you know, no one is really talking, and I have to go back and look at her website, but no one's really talking in depth about what they're going to do about that. You know, and that, mm -hmm. and that just really scares me. Yeah, you're right. I mean, Warren recently released her her voting plan, right? She did. Sorry. Sorry, Warren. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was recent and we just had to absorb a lot of information for the past two hours. So, um, yeah, I agree. I think we do. It, it feels weird because I'm like, are the Democrats also balancing, um, not freaking people out who like, and like making people give up and being like, Oh my God, it's hopeless. And that's why they're not totally leaning into it. Or are they really just like that? dense i i don't know maybe it's just like my wishful thinking now I'm like maybe it's not like maybe they are trying to balance it and like further down the line because we have so much, we have such a long time until election day we have such a long time 
I went through all of their websites to, so, I, so I could be fair about who's really fleshed out their mm-hmm. policies or not, right? And, you know, of course, like I said, Warren has, you know, she has that all over her website. And the really impressive thing that she does is that her marketing is really good about getting out the message that she has a plan. And if you go to her mm-hmm. website and you click on the issues and you click through, she has like a blurb about what the issue is and where her stance is. And then it clicks over to a medium, dot, a medium site that she has that goes into like a full page explanation of how she she's going to implement it. And I think that's really, really smart. And then Castro also has a lot of detail. And then like, I think Harris, which we'll talk about, you know, tomorrow, of course, she has a bit of detail too. But um, that's just one of the things I wanted to point out. Like she's really thought about a lot of those issues. And well, first, one thing I wanted to mention is that I totally noticed that question from Mad Ow, where she kind of basically asked Julian to speak for like all mm-hmm. Latino voters and like how to get them to support Democrats. And I was like, oh, like, this is why we're right. not white. Wow. I will say that this is a good time to manage expectations. And so I I wasn't expecting something groundbreaking. And it, it's been helpful, I guess, in terms of, like, making sure that my bigotry of being, like, no white dudes 2020 is totally okay. Like, that totally affirmed me. <laughs> um, so I really appreciate that. And I'm just excited for the pool to get smaller because right now it's just... It's a bit of a mess. It's not like the clown show like the Republicans had during their primaries, but it's it's a lot. Yeah. Um, I I completely forgot about that moment with Matto. And then like he was literally the only one that answered that question. And I was just like, <laughs> what happened? Yeah. No one else is no one else is talking. And it was like mic drop moment. It was like good for him, but still it was like kind of I am mm. I'm really excited that we did this. I am really excited that we did this, that we had, you know, three medium minds. We, we, we are not all in the same exact space politically and stuff, but I, I, when you came with this idea, Jennifer, for us to come together and chat, um, I knew it would be good just from the conversations I've had with both of you. And um, so I'm excited that we did this. I'm looking forward to having another count. I'm looking forward to tomorrow because I get to talk to you all again. Not because we're going to have to see another 10 people yeah. on the stage for two hours, because that's a little crazy. <laughs> I am interested to see how Biden fares with that big crowd. Um, you oh, know, yeah. uh, he's not really the best in debate. He's not the best at much. <laughs> it's going to be interesting. Yeah, you have to say that. Sorry, I interrupt you. I keep interrupting you, but he is really good at debate. See, that's the thing. Like, do you remember when he debated Palin? Was he really good or was he just really bad? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it was Palin, yeah. Yeah, right? I feel like Palin was really bad. I mean, like... Okay, okay, you got me there. I can yeah, yeah, right. from my house. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah but- I predict that Joe Biden is going to piss me off. That's my prediction for tomorrow night. I think he's going to be old school. I think he's going to try and go there to, like, mm-hmm. assert his space as a front runner. I think it's going to be a little bit turned up a few notches from tonight honestly yeah it is is. especially with harris on stage that's gonna be Mm -hmm. that's gonna be on fire yeah Yeah. wow yeah so that's gonna be interesting i just had this one random thought that and i know that it will never happen and it shouldn't happen because she has her own agency but if stacy abrams was in this field everybody it would be over everybody should just go (laughs) right (laughs) agreed oh i wish that would have been so nice but you know yeah anyway (laughs) that's that's all i have to say great well thank you ladies we'll talk to you tomorrow and um yeah i'm excited same thank you it was a pleasure uh processing that wonderful show (laughs) with both of you (laughs) 